0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Zubin Damania, aka Z Dog MD, and welcome to the Z Dog MD Show. All right, today we're doing something a little different. I recently did a Instagram Live video where I streamed and took uh, random comments and questions, and it's my usual stream of consciousness. And I thought, you know what, let's go ahead and release this on the podcast. And I'll tell you guys the kind of things that ended up being discussed. You'll notice when the show starts, it just comes out of left field because that's where I decided to put the edit. Um, I just am taking people's comments and interacting with them a little bit. So that's why it may feel a little disconcerting from the podcast standpoint, but it kicks in pretty quick uh, what we're doing. So we talk about how, you know, a lot of our fans had come for the COVID stuff, but stayed for the, deeper stuff we're talking about with healthcare transformation and awakening and that sort of thing. Um, So along the lines of that, we ended up covering kind of long COVID as a biopsychosocial condition, dentists of all things, uh, the left hemisphere versus the right hemisphere and their roles in society and individual thought and, and function. We talk about healthcare burnout and how left and right hemisphere relate to that story and the story of Health 3.0, a new emergent that seeks to kind of align the two hemispheres in a new system. Uh, We talk about the nature of our own true nature and the problem with thought, how thought can be considered, kind of discursive self-referential thought can be considered the disease of the human mind actually, and how we might look for the looker as an inquiry, what's looking in our experience. We talk about human conditioning and validation seeking, absolute reality versus the relative world. We talk about identity, including gender identity and what that might mean in an absolute sense. We talk about non-duality, kids in meditation and more. So without further ado, here is the episode as we launch right into it. Dude, this is crazy how much uh, people from around the world come and it's all one thing, right? It's all one happening. We're just the expression of it. In a way, we're just like nature excreting itself and talking to itself. It's just crazy awesome. Measles outbreak in South Africa, that sucks, Drysdale. The thing about measles is in order to prevent it, you need like 94% plus vaccination rate in a community. Otherwise you end up failing with the herd immunity. Uh, But once you get measles or you are vaccinated. It's kind of a sterilizing immunity. It's like a lifelong immunity. And Paul Offit and I talked about this on a previous show. Um, Oh, thank you, Karen. The the COVID thing was like, it's like a, it was interesting, it it kind of, because we were trying to be rational in a kind of irrational world and people can argue over whether we were successful or not or to what degree we were successful. But as that's really wound up, um, what I'm learning is, A lot of people came for the COVID and they're staying for the present moment awakening stuff, which is really heartwarming, like makes me happy. Cause that's like, if we wake ourselves up to what we actually are, right? Like this one thing, (laughs) Uh, the other problems become less of problems they really do because they just start to solve themselves it's it's really interesting yeah huge vaccine hesitancy now from the covid thing that's why yeah because we screwed that whole thing up right the way that they um the way that they uh messaged the covid vaccine couldn't have been more antagonistic to people who don't want to be told what to do they want to be told okay this is why you should do it and i don't want to mandate it because It's not about infecting other people, it's about keeping yourself safe and avoiding severe disease because the vaccine doesn't prevent infection the way that they initially thought it might. So you gotta change your messaging and you gotta be clear that um, this is for your benefit. And if you've already had COVID, that's okay. You probably don't need the vaccine. It might help a little bit to consolidate immunity or you might elect not to do it. Instead, they use the big single hammer, piss everybody off. And now, what suffers is childhood vaccination, a vaccination that is actually very helpful on most levels. And we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater in the public's eye. And the public trust of things like CDC and our, our public, and you know, I know you're in South Africa, but our public health apparatus is like probably at a pretty ridiculous low. And the fact, throw in the fact that it's politicized which is insane. Uh, And you just have a recipe for stupidity on a mass scale, which is what we see, like all sides of it, total stupidity, except for my side, damn it. My side's right. Um, Let's see. Uh, BS children should never have been in the COVID mix, Wainer 49. I'm not sure what you're calling BS on, but Um, There is an argument to to make for vaccinating children and also not vaccinating children when it comes to COVID. So there are arguments you can make on both sides of that. Um, My kids are vaccinated, but they're not like, they're not boosted and they're certainly not bivalent boosted. Um, Actually my oldest ended up getting a booster when I was traveling because she was peer pressured by her friends, which I don't like at all when it comes to health decisions. And I'm sure you don't, a lot of people don't either but that's just how it is. But she's smart and she made her decision. Chapan O'Reilly says, I work in a hospital and I see so many blood clots and heart issues. But I worked in a hospital before COVID and I saw so many blood clots and heart issues. This is just something that I think we're, there's a couple things, right? It's easy to kind of conflate these sort of stories with some causality because that's what humans do, they're pattern recognizers, and they're trying to find like an explanation for something that probably is already happening. The second explanation is, could it be actual COVID itself that's causing those things, right? Um, so this idea that on mass vaccines are causing clots and, and heart issues, yes, there's definitely myocarditis, and that is in a particular age group at the highest risk, but it can happen anywhere. So yeah, there can be some of that, um, but, remembering that natural COVID infection can cause myocarditis as well. So it's much more nuanced than a black and white answer on any of this. Um, And I'm actually very sympathetic to saying, hey, we need to take myocarditis more seriously than public health does. Um, What's up, Montana? Oh, it's good to be live, Kay. Um, Let's discuss long COVID, Tracy. Do we have to? Long COVID is biopsychosocial. It's a biopsychosocial phenomenon, as my good friend, Dr. Rachel Zoffness has made clear. There's a biological component, potential or exposure to COVID. Um, then there's the psychological component, which is, oh my God, i am got this long COVID or whatever it is, There's it's such a nuanced, complicated psychology behind any disease. And then you've got the social component, which is media and all this stuff kind of putting a, a spotlight on long COVID, long COVID, long COVID, long COVID. Um, and there are examples in recent public health history in Hong Kong and elsewhere, where when when that kind of thing happens, there's an outbreak of a condition. And it makes you think, again, these things are biological, psychological, and social. So you gotta study it, which they're doing, but you gotta be careful about um, reducing it to any single quadrant. Like the people who are like, it's all in these people's heads, nope. The people who are like, it's all COVID and it's a disaster, nope. The people who are like, it's all the media making this hysteria, nope. It's all three of those things interacting in an unpredictable, super complex and magnificent way to create this phenomenon that is reduced to a label long COVID, which means nothing. It's just a label, means nothing. Like all our human labels, they actually point to nothing but other labels. Thoughts point to nothing but other thoughts, but we take them as real. And that's the fundamental, that's the fundamental case of mistaken identity that humans do. The the disease of the human mind is identifying with thought. Let's talk Epstein-Barr virus. Uh, nah, that's a whole lecture. Um, that's a whole nother thing. Epstein-Barr classically associated with like Burkitt's lymphoma in Africa, mononucleosis in um, Western cultures and others. Uh, and there is this question of like residual Epstein-Barr virus and other things. Is there a contribution to things like chronic fatigue syndrome? Again, these are all labels and the and the truth is We don't know for sure because we don't study these holistic systems. We try to reduce and study individual parts out of context. It's a very left brain thing that medicine has been doing. And reality is actually much more right brain. Right brain sees reality as a whole in its context with its meaning and left brain tries to take reality and find things to manipulate. That's its job. Unfortunately, when you make the left brain the whole enchilada, which we do in medicine, you end up with total bullshit. And that's what we're seeing. Like it, medical administration is often a left brain phenomenon, taking these things, trying to manipulate numbers to try to get outcomes that are measurable and so on. And that's great as far as it goes, but it doesn't, it doesn't describe reality. It, it describes ways to manipulate reality that may or may not have anything to do with the actual reality. And as you can tell in medicine, when we aim, when we try to teach to the test and try to kind of point to particular sort of measurements, then we actually change outcomes in ways that are unpredictable. Not what you would think because we're not really invoking the right brain holistic context of that individual patient or that individual caregiver-patient relationship or the social determinants of health in the mix with whatever medications are going on with whatever else, with whatever the hope streams and fears of that patient are and their psychological internal status and all of that. So it gets cray. By the way, is my autofocus working? It is. Okay, good. Um, just wanted to check on that. Yeah, check up on it. Luna. Let's talk about crappy molars and root canals. Oh man, do we, I, teeth, I hate teeth. Teeth are the worst. When your teeth are effed up, like your whole life is ruined, basically. It just feels like everything's falling apart. That's why people have stress dreams about losing all their teeth. It's it's a proxy for like decay, aging, death, and humans don't like that shit. So teeth are a problem, plus, the pain sensors those nerves are so close to the brain it's almost like that pain is amplified when you have tooth pain so i got to give a shout out to my dentists out there cuz your shit's important right um and you're also when when you're bad you're terrible you're killing us <laughs> and when you're good you're a, you're a, you're an angel or a a, a hero um let's see Columbus, Ohio, good to see you. Stay Zen, Donsky. Um, I'd love it if you talked about Eli Lilly lowering the cost of insulin. I'm a diabetic and I work in healthcare and I'm skeptical this decision was on their own accord. Oh, of course it wasn't on their own accord. All kinds of like, I think Bernie Sanders was pressuring them writing um, letters to their CEO. I think there's a PR benefit to it for them. Um, but they are lowering the the list price of the drug, which is important because that affects people who are uninsured and poorly insured with high deductible plans, um, as opposed to you know this PBM pharmacy benefit manager uh, bullshit of like um, massaging rebates and clawbacks and all of this nonsense that just ends up enriching you know the PBMs and the manufacturers and all of this. And so this is a good move. Again, I'm sure they were pressured into it. That's why we got to put pressure um, for insulin, which is a life-saving drug. People lose their lives if they don't get insulin. Um, yeah, let's see. So I think it's a good thing. Um, I am poop scared of a dentist to Drysdale. That's, that's not a irrational fear. The, the thing about dentists are just like doctors. If you get a really interventionalist dentist who wants to do a bunch of stuff to you, like, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. So with with my own dentistry uh, journey. So when I was living in the Bay Area at Stanford, um, I had a great dentist, older guy, and he, he retired since then, but he was a minimalist, like very conservative about what he did. He's like, now nah, you don't wanna do anything to your teeth unless you really have to. And he's like, your teeth are fine, don't mess with anything. Yeah, you have this little ache and pain here. We could do this minimal crown, but honestly, I would leave it alone until it got worse. And then if it got worse, you could do this. And so he's very good about that. Then I go to Las Vegas, and the first dentist I see is a total opportunist. And it's just like, I did this Panorex scan of my face irradiating me, all this crap says I need all this work done and I'm like, what? So then I, I'm like, nope. So then I go to another dentist and he's like, nah, you're fine. It was, it was much more like the first dentist that I had and had him for years. Then I come back to the bay. The first dentist I see was somebody who was recommended by a doctor. And I should have, I should have known, because doctors are interventionalists, many of them. They're like, they want somebody who's gonna do some stuff. Some of them do, right? And this guy was like that. So this, this person was like, you need this crown and a deep cleaning, and then you need uh, what else was it? Um, you need braces, and you need, I'm like, yeah, dude, I know. Do you think at fifty, I want? I'm not fifty yet, but I want to get braces. Like, I'm a public figure, and I don't care. I really don't care. So going on and on and on, and I'm like, that's weird. So then I get, I go to another dentist. I'm like dentist shopping. I go to another dentist, and they tell me another list of things that needs to be done, and there's barely any overlap between the two dentists in what they're, and I'm like, okay, so these guys are all cray. So then what happens is I ask another dentist that I know, do you know anyone in town who is good? And when the dentist recommends someone, then you're down. So then I see that person and they were amazing. They were were like, yeah, this is one thing where eventually you may need a crown, but you'll know it because this and this and this will happen. Until then, I wouldn't recommend a deep cleaning. I wouldn't recommend these things. These other people were saying, let's just get you with our um, hygienist. And the hygienist was awesome because every other hygienist would like do the, use the ultrasonic thing and all that. And she's like, you don't have a lot of buildup. Like, let's just do it manually. And she was just like, oh, she'd just get in there and scrape the teeth. It didn't hurt at all, but you could feel the like manual intent behind the whole thing. It was really interesting, and now I've gotten to this thing where like I can meditate during a dental procedure, and I I'm just in a different place. Like I'm if there's if there's a discomfort, I just dive into the discomfort and just in, and I am the discomfort without any judgment, and it's actually a not a bad place to be. But there wasn't even that; it was just beautiful. So it's a journey, just like when if you're trying to find a therapist, which I've not done, but people will say, "Oh, I don't like this therapist. I didn't like this therapist, I, so I'm not going to therapy." So you didn't find the fit. Same with dentistry. Same with doctors. Like it, you have to ask the right questions, do a little bit of your work yourself, be open and listen, but then also be skeptical. I mean, there's a whole process and we're not all trained to do that, right? And in dentistry, I'm not really trained to do that. So you have to kind of develop the sense. It's, it's, it's a challenge. Um, let's see. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with the ultrasonic like cleaner. It's just what she told me was like, for you, cause you have some genetic like gum recession, those things are going to be unpleasant. And it's, it's easier for me to do it this way cause you don't have a lot of buildup. So why would we just go and do that? And just torture you. And it's true because when, before when I'd have dental cleanings, I was like, this is really painful. Um, which was fine. Cause I would do the meditation thing, but it's like, if you don't have to do that, why? And the teeth were clean. Um, Let's see. Here, a uh, dentist here. Oh, great, Joe Cardo. Dentist here, ultrasonics break bacterial cell walls. I'd much prefer they start with a quick blast of the ultrasonic, then switch to manual removal. Nobody's gonna get 100% removal in either method. Great insight, great insight. Maybe I'll ask her next time. Um, way, uh, what a dentist has in common with a gynecologist, they just popped up. Sorry. Wait, What, a dentist and a gynecologist, they just popped up? I don't get the joke. (laughs) Am I not? Yeah, I don't get it. Does anyone else get it? (laughs) Um, Ahud Morgan, any thoughts on erythritol? Um... Hey, sorry to interrupt this episode, it's Dr. Z. Just a quick pitch here. If you can just leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, it helps us a lot. I also wanna hear what you think about this episode when you're done listening. Hello at zdogmd.com. It's the best way for me to hear your voice because the emails come right to me. And we don't have a comment section on most podcast platforms. Maybe Spotify has one, but nobody else does. So it really gets your voice involved on episodes, especially that don't have a video. And the third thing is if you want to be a part of this community and support the show, Join our supporter tribe, zdogmdcom forward slash supporters. You can join on YouTube, locals, Facebook, Instagram. You get live videos with me where we're talking about these things in depth, uncensored, and your comments are fully incorporated as in real time. And then we do these Zoom meetings where it's really like a beautiful community where we share our experiences on the awakening journeyless journey. How are we going to transform ourselves so we can transform healthcare and education and government? Because those systems are... Epiphenomena of us until we wake up, those systems will stay asleep. They'll, they're just an expression of our own delusion. So, being a part of that, it supports this message so others can hear it. And it also allows for our own collective growth. So, we need each other in that way. It's really, really, really tightly interwoven and interdependent. That's it. Back to your regular schedule, regularly scheduled show. The non-absorbable sugar alcohol that's used to sweeten a lot of products, um, and it, is, it, it doesn't raise blood sugar because it's not, a, uh, it's not a sugar, it's a sugar alcohol and it's not properly absorbed. So it's in a lot of products that are like said keto granola or something. They'll sweeten it with erythritol and it's, so it's a popular sweetener, and too much of it can give you diarrhea because it's not absorbed and it becomes an osmotic load. So it draws water from the intestines and colon into the lumen of the colon, and then you shart yourself to death. Um, not to death, you know what I'm talking about. So there's recently, if I'm thinking of what you're pointing at, there was recently a study in the prep reported in the press that erythritol use was associated with a higher rate of blood clots, stroke, and that kind of thing. And it wasn't insignificant association. However, the way that they looked at this, I think, was they looked at erythritol blood levels and people with higher blood levels of erythritol had X percentage higher risk or incidence of stroke or whatever, blood clot. And so they were saying, well, there may be some causal thing here where erythritol is causing these conditions. But you can't say that from the type of trial that was done. Now, I didn't look at the raw data, but just looking at what the press had reported. You can't say that. You can say that there, there was a correlation looking, because it wasn't a randomized control trial, there was a correlation looking, to my knowledge, uh, looking at people with higher erythritol levels in the blood and stroke. But there could be other reasons or other characteristics of people who have higher erythritol levels that also lends itself to having higher risk of stroke. Maybe they have leakier bowel walls and they absorb more erythritol, and that's just a marker. It's not a cause of the stroke. Maybe there's other lifestyle issues that they have that go along with eating a lot of erythritol-related products, like they are on a keto diet, and the keto diet um, is higher in saturated fat, and maybe they're mixing it with carbs, and they're raising their uh, a stroke risk. I mean, right? It could be any of those things, So, and more. So what the definitive thing was you'd have to do a randomized controlled trial where people are randomized to either eating erythritol containing products and or placebo, and then seeing what the incidence of those outcomes are. And that's a hard, harder trial to do. Um, And then, you know, there's questions of like confounders like Lizzie brings up, like how many of the people in the trial had diabetes? How many of the people in trial were eating erythritol because they had diabetes, in which case they're at a higher risk for stroke and cardiovascular disease? Anyways, and I forget it, cause I haven't, I I, I remember reading about it in the paper, in the media, but I hadn't followed up and I've forgotten some of the stuff. So you guys can refresh me if you know more about this. Cause you know, you just asked the question and that's what I remember. Um, Let's see. Have you heard about new uh, concierge ERs? Why are we getting so dangerously close to survival of the fittest and particularly in healthcare? Uh, me, Farmer. I mean, it's a great question. I think it's because our healthcare system is so broken that people are trying to fix it in any way Whether and, and only the rich people can afford it because it's so expensive. But when we were doing our... Um, primary care clinic turntable health, it was like concierge care for the the masses because it was affordable for either the insurance company to pay for or for the individual to pay for or for the employer to pay for. So there are ways to get around this, but like a shift to straight concierge is a, it's already a two tier system we have here, guys. Just like in socialized medicine countries, you can get the socialized medicine piece, the universal healthcare piece, or you can opt in pay for the private care piece. And there are two tiers of care. But on balance, it's hard to know who has better outcomes. You'd have to look at that because sometimes less is more. In fact, most times in medicine, less is more. I'm pretty increasingly convinced of that. Um, Let's see. Um, Yeah, norovirus is raging, Pallas. I mean, that's it happens. Norovirus is gross. Get that nausea, vomiting, stomach flu type stuff. It's, It's bad. The sharts. Can we talk about burnout? Um, Yeah. I mean, it's the end stage of a chronic disease. It's like being on dialysis and the chronic disease is moral injury. It's being forced to compromise what you value every single day and uh, just to survive or to please multiple masters, insurance company, employer, patient, family, conscience, and they're at odds. And when they're at odds, it's moral injury. It's just like in war, that's where the term came from. So right now, I think there's a couple of reasons. There's a few reasons for this kind of phenomenon. One is that there's rampant moral injury. And the reason there's rampant moral injury is that we treat medicine like a left brain, left hemisphere thing. We reduce medicine to a series of checklists and <clears throat> money and, and like raw materials in and outcomes coming out the other side. And that's not how human health is, and we know that because we have a right hemisphere that tells us, wait, something's really wrong. Interesting thing about the right hemisphere is it doesn't talk outwardly. It ha- it understands language, and it contributes to language, but it doesn't talk. So it's like sitting there silently, going, "What the hell is going on in the world here with medicine?" And the left hemisphere is like, "Click the boxes, do this, manipulate this parameter, see this many patients, you know, x x x x x," and the right hemisphere is just suffering. The whole organism is just suffering. And so burnout is almost like this discohesion between left and right, between what we know is right holistically and what we're forced to do. And we need to, those need to align because they can. Like that's the natural state is the alignment. So that's where we need to really focus our transformation efforts. And some of this can't be done in that sense, it has to kind of emerge because there's different. Um, I think there's different paths to what I call health 3.0, which is that emergent in healthcare that rebalances left and right hemisphere, that rebalances sort of unconscious and conscious, and you know, nutrition, environment, diet, psychology, awakening, spirituality, all that stuff is part of the whole the whole manifestation of the human. And we cannot reduce it just to a part. So that's where the 3.0 kind of brings the more holistic thing. But that means people who practice in 3.0 would by definition have less moral injury because there's less of that apartness. There's less of that division, that apparent division. Hope I'm recording this. Oh yeah, I think I am. yeah, Luna says, and not even a smart left hemisphere. That's right. So the characteristics of the left hemisphere, according to Dr. Ian McGillchrist, who's written a great book, Master and His Emissary, the characteristics of the left, it has, it, and it's not so much, we used to ask the question, what does the left and right hemisphere do? That's not, that's not really the important question. The question is more like, what are they like? Like, what's their personality? What's their sort of way of seeing the world? Because we create the world with our minds. We just do. So, What is the left hemisphere's creation? And these are two separate things connected by the corpus callosum that are inhibitory fibers mostly. So they're a way of one hemisphere putting the brakes on the other. It's not so much a like understanding, it's a, okay, okay, my turn. They're separate personalities. And this is shown in split brain experiments where the corpus callosum is cut to try to treat certain types of epilepsy, These famous split brain uh, uh, experiments. You can actually tease out that there are two conscious entities in a single human at least and you can test them independently because the left hemisphere controls the right side of the body and the right hemisphere controls the left, including visual fields and so on. It's a little more nuanced than that, but that's how it is. You can actually do these ingenious tests. Um, So the left hemisphere has these characteristics, which is it always thinks it's right Everything has to be explicit, so it doesn't really understand humor. It doesn't understand nuance. It doesn't understand metaphor. It takes things very concretely, almost like somebody with schizophrenia or autism. It's it's a kind of a concreteness, like, and it gets very difficult. But the the, the personality aspects of the left hemisphere is are that it has righteous indignation. It really sees it as as an either or. Like there's no nuance, and it's unnaturally optimistic, like it's just like, nope, we're right, we're gonna do this. So it's, and it doesn't really see reality. It sees the reality that it, in terms of what it can manipulate. So instead of seeing a a life, it sees a machine with different parts. So that's our left hemisphere. Now the right hemisphere actually is a little more um, moody. It's it's more realistic. It sees things more holistically. Um, It sees things as living breathing entities, like people who've had left-sided strokes where they're left with just right hemisphere, see rocks and stones and bricks as living, breathing entities, which they may well be, and sees everything as this kind of interconnected oneness. And if you wanna know what that's like, watch Jill Bolte-Taylor's TED Talk, My Stroke of Insight, and you'll see what that's like. Whereas people who've had right hemisphere strokes where they're left with a left hemisphere, they see other humans as almost like zombies, as almost not alive, as machines. Everything is kind of parceled out and quantized, um, very concrete and completely dead, mechanical. They also have a neglect of the opposite side of the visual field that they don't control. Like they'll see their you know, left arm, they can't see it. And if you show it to them, the left hemisphere will say, that's not mine, that's my mom's. Like they'll just make up an answer, which is very left hemisphere. So you think about how society moves over time. It moves from a holistic right hemisphere, creative, integrative experience. As the left, as things become more bureaucratic and the empire gets bigger and language becomes dominant and written word and bureaucracy, the left hemisphere becomes ascendant and things go to absolute hell. And you look at our society now, it's a very left hemisphere. You look at medicine, it's a very left hemisphere. So health 3.0 is about bringing back the balance to the right being the master hemisphere, the left being the tool, and then sending it back to the right for integration, right? Um, oh man, I've been to South Padre Island uh, with a spoke at a medical center there, South Texas. Yeah, a lot of need out there. Um, thank you for addressing burnout, leaving the bedside frontline from corporate burnout. Yeah, it's bad. It's all that left hemisphere garbage. Um, let's see. Uh, Lizzie says, I've watched you a few years and now I can recognize you as a calm, uh, recognize you a calm in spite of all the stuff that's in your brain, health 3.0. Yeah, well, my own journey has been, <laughs> it continues. <laughs> you're You're kind of on it with me, so... It's funny, like I look at videos that I've done like two years ago and I'm unrecognizable to myself. I'm just like, oh, who is that guy? Wow, he's angry. Or he's definitely staking a position here that's pretty firm. Not so such a thing exists in reality. It's all kind of shades of gray. It's all like alt-middle nuance. Um, Let's see, where are we at? Any tips on what to do about burnout when studying for boards? Oh Lord. Uh, I'll just say this, like anytime you're like, oh God, this is too much. Remember that all of that is thought. That's all thought. That's all thought happening now that's driving you crazy and it's generating suffering because there's the sense of the one who's thinking these thoughts, who has all this agency and can move things around and do things and has to do things in order to survive and study for the boards. And, oh my God, what if, I, what if, what if, what if, what if, and my future and my past and all that. And that's all great. That's all wonderful. But it can be seen in this moment that all of that is just thought, and it's all entirely referring to nothing in the present moment. Because in this moment, what is there? Let's say you're super stressed out, you're studying for boards, and you're like, God, I don't even know how to, how to and you're feeling yourself spin out. Or you're depersonalized, you're exhausted and all of that. Remember that Infinity, the infinite eternal now is always and already right here. And everything you thought you were, this person, this belief, this test that's coming up, all that is a total illusion, a ghost of thought appearing in the vast, empty, awake, eternal now that is what you actually are, that is your true nature. And when you allow attention which is the thing you have to give your attention to come into presence. Maybe it's just looking out at the visual fields, the shapes, the colors, the brightnesses, and not labeling anything. Maybe it's dropping attention into the sense of the body, not the body, because that's a thought. Body is a thought. Close your eyes. Is there a body that isn't a thought? No, there's tingling, there's warmth, there's indescribable, infinite sensation. Drop your attention into that. And then see, is there a future or a past beyond thought? No, there isn't. There's just this. And then if you really want to disrupt everything, ask yourself the question, who's looking? Who's looking at all this? Who's directing attention? And try to find that, and anything you find it is probably a thought. So keep looking, but that's prescription strength. Mindfulness right there. Um, <laughs> Donald Hoffman, yeah. Uh, Nanner Boppers says, we're all doing our best by being open to change and constant learning and relearning, I love your attitude. That's so awesome, right? You just framed it as like, yeah, oh, we're doing our best. It's just this, going with the flow of life, which is when you have a complete and unadulterated trust of what is, you will act naturally and spontaneously, and it'll be just right. And you have to really know that. You can't even believe that. You have to know it. And that's there. When you look, it's there. Um, That's part of the unfolding. Anne Brown says, "'Hi, Zubin, I think I'm done uh, doing data entry. "'That's not why I became a nurse.' I just wanna help people genuinely. Yeah, because they've asked you to do all left hemisphere nonsense, and what you are is, is infinite. <laughs> your infinite, unconditional love manifesting, you're the universe looking at itself through your eyes. The same awake presence that looks out through my eyes, looks out through your eyes, looks out through all eyes and sees only itself. And we're, and we're trying to say, yeah, enter these, unimportant data sets in this computer and that's how we'll make people better. (laughs) it almost just make you laugh. It'll make you laugh in the end if it wasn't so sad. Um, As an adult, it's kind of sad how a big part of life is just performative exercise. Oh, that's well put. It's actually even more than that. It's that we're so conditioned in life, in our human incarnation and the way we deal with other humans to seek validation. We don't even know we're doing it. So much of our life is to seek validation. So what do we do? We act in a certain way that we think is expected. You know, we um, put on these particular identities and we believe them so that we can get the validation that we think we need. But the truth is like the truth, the absolute truth of this moment right now is it's perfect. There's nothing you need and there's no you to need it in the sense that you think, and you have absolutely no control over it anyways because you'd be pushing on and pulling on yourself there's nothing there in the absolute sense and if that's the left channel on your headphone the absolute reality is it's perfect it's eternal no time no space just this and then on the right channel of reality which is simultaneous with the left is the relative world of all the stories and the identities and all the bullshit. And the problem is, just like left and right hemisphere, we've moved all the attention to one side and we've forgotten the absolute. That right hemisphere like, oh, this is actually perfect. Watch Jill Bolte-Taylor's TED Talk, Stroke of Insight, and you'll see what it looks like when someone embodies that. It's beautiful. Um. Thanks, Hunter. Really appreciate what you do. I truly enjoy the efforts to uh, share the truth. Also, VPZD is awesome. VPZD is my chance to unleash the id. You know, VP is, is he's a powerful personality, man. I just enjoy it. Uh, and I, I'm not sure I so much am into the polarization of some of our discussions, but I do love the um, exploring of evidence, right? Um, and it it's just fun to do. But of course, if it were just me, I would just be sitting there going, guys, everything's perfect. (laughs) There's nothing to do. But then that other channel of reality is, no, but there's a lot to do, right? And they're simultaneously true. That's the paradox of reality. It's pure paradox and it's beautiful. Is the left-right hemisphere related to gender dysphoria at all? Silent killer. I, I don't know about that, but I'll say that gender stuff has to do with identity at root. It's like, who am I? Who am I? And ultimately you can argue that there is no male, there is no female in the absolute. There's just this, there's no, the identity is the universal identity. It's just everything happening. But in the relative world, we do assume identities. We do have um, a particular sense of what the body is and then what our identity is. And if those are not in cahoots, then things happen. And I'm not an expert in this, so I try not to talk about it because there are a lot of people online who think they know stuff about this. All I know is in the absolute reality, there's no gender, there's no sex, there's no separation. So we create that in thought. But the thing is those thoughts have societal consequences. They have consequences for what bathroom you go into. They have consequences for what clothes you buy and how you express. So they have that reality in that sense, but this is all a kind of shared delusion in a way. So I don't know. That's my take on it for what it's worth. You're welcome, silent. Um, Nair Bopper says, thanks for the positive mind switch, Dr. Z. Time to work on building my raised garden beds. I like the sound of that. Right action, just doing something like that. Being out in nature, hands in the dirt, working with plants, which are beings... They really are. You 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 really you don't have to drop psilocybin mushrooms to know that. It's just there. Um, oh, thank you, the extra introvert. That's nice if, Nice feedback. So an identity is an illusion. I'm trying to reach this. I'm trying to teach this to my teenage girl who has so many questions and so do I. dom i ni ka Okay, this is really a crazy synchronicity. Let's talk about this. This morning, I'm driving with my... Fifteen-year-old. I dropped my eleven-year-old off and my fifteen-year-old, and we're, I'm joking around about pronouns or something, and and she is very highly conditioned by her public school, uh, in Bay Area public school stuff. So like everybody, you know, has to say their pronouns, and you have to go through all this stuff, and and her friends are very like, um, uh, you know, classically, liberally trained. So this thing is a big deal. Identity is a big deal, and. I started playing devil's advocate with her. And I said, so, okay, so what is identity ultimately? Like, what is how you identify, you choose your pronouns or how you wanna be called and all that? Like, what is that? Like, who, who is that? Is there a little boy or a girl or a non-binary in, in you? Can you find that in your actual moment-to-moment experience? Or is that a thought? Is that a, a story? Is that a belief? That's also a thought. And so if that's true in an absolute sense, in the sense of what you actually are, is there gender, is there identity like that? Is that real or is it a construction of our minds? And she said, well, it sounds like it's a construction of our minds. But but then, so, so then she said, but then so that it doesn't matter, right? It's an illusion, right? And I said, aha, but that construction of our minds is a reality that we create, that we share with other apparent humans in this we space of thought, of the consciousness generated world. And so in a sense, there's a reality there. There's a lived reality that in the relative world, how you identify actually affects other things like what bathroom you use or who your friends are or what clothes you choose to wear or who you decide to have a relationship with. So it has these particular real world, real world, sorry, (laughs) relative world consequences. So it's important to be able to see that and hold it in your mind and in your heart, and then also hold the absolute view, which is none of that matters. None of that is real all of this is one happening perfectly orchestrated by no one for no one the universe looking at itself universing and you can have both of those emptiness and form as interchangeable non-duality and see the world that way and then at that point she had checked out (laughs) she was like whatever (laughs) i just wanted a simple concrete answer to that question and you gave me that bullshit." So that's just how it is. Um, (laughs) Carrie says, our culture feels too caught up on labels, harder for kids to know who they are when they're supposed to fit in with someone else's box. Exactly. But but listen, okay, I, I actually told her this too, and I forgot to mention this. I told her this as well, which is, it is normal and expected in your teenage years to go through all these identities, to all this experimentation, to identify with different things. We all have multiple identities within us that we play at different times, whether it's the role of a father, the role of a doctor, the role of a teacher, the role of a YouTube guy, the role of a dude who meditates, the role of the spiritual seeker, whatever it is. All those identities are are part of us and we switch through them fluidly based on circumstances, but they're all identities. They're all thought. They're all belief. You can see through all of them but they're all part of our operating system. So when you're a teenager, you're supposed to try on those different identities. You're supposed to experiment around and see what kind of authentically feels right in this expression of this human. But what we don't teach you is that it's all bullshit ultimately. And that's simultaneously true. The non-duality of that reality is the truth. It's our true nature. So we ought to do that too. Otherwise, you're stuck in identity with no way out. You believe it as a truth and when suffering happens, it's a you that's suffering withholding this identity like and fighting for it to the point where we have wars over identity. That's dumb. But that's how we have been teaching our kids. Miss um, says, uh, do you have any podcast episodes on the trend of asking the time during lucid dreaming and the bizarre responses it elicits? I'm so curious about why, as a lucid dreamer? So I don't know. I don't know about that specific question, but I know that I did a really cool podcast with um, Andrew Holacek on lucid dreaming, and you should definitely listen to that. It's back on. It's only in. Um, actually, it's on YouTube too, but it's only audio, so you can find it on iTunes. All the things. Just go search Z Dog MD Show and search Andrew Holacek. You'll see that we did a video. It's also on my website zdogmd.com. Um, let's see. Is this live gonna be saved and posted, the extra introvert? Yes, I'll save it on Instagram, I think, but Instagram's so crappy for long video. So I'll try to put it on Facebook and YouTube as well, Uh, just because, why not, right? Um, And so it'll be there and uh, you guys can laugh at it and go, God, this sucks, this guy's an idiot. Um, What else? Let's see. Now, of course, if it's an over if it's it's if it's over an hour in length, I won't be able to keep it on Instagram. So I may have, how long have we been going? There's no way for me to know. Um I forgot to check the time, so I might just have to stop soon so that we have some hope of keeping it on Instagram. Um What else? Any other questions before we bounce? Um Going back here, let's see. Okay. Oh, any tips on getting kids to meditate, Dominica? Um, I have not tried really with my kids. What I do is I just point them whenever I can, whenever they're anxious, I'll put a hand on them, feel energetically what's going on and just point them to the present moment as much as I can. And I'm not really good at it with kids yet because there's too much conditioning. It's weird with me. So it's something that I'm working on too, is like, how do I introduce this to my kids without them laughing at me, which they do, uh, calling me a fake guru and all this, which I probably am. And um, so getting there to meditate, Annika Harris, Sam Harris's wife has great uh, meditations on his waking up app for aimed at kids, I think. And she's written about this and it's kind of her specialty. Uh, So teaching mindfulness in in elementary schools and so on, I think it's very important, very useful because it gives kids at least on the superficial level, a tool to deal with their monkey minds that are going crazy and making them nuts. But on a deeper level, it starts opening the doors to true awakening, to true identity shift, to true realization of just this, just this. Just this moment, perfect, radiating, center everywhere like you as everything and also know you impossible to talk about and yet here we are because we got to use words all right i gotta go i love it you guys are a lot of awesome your comments are great your questions are awesome and i love you like a fat kid loves high caloric food um all right until next time we are out. peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe.